when people are used to being marginalized, there's very little trust. And the changes that we want to see, even well-intentioned ones, are only going to advance at the speed of gaining that trust. And you have to earn it. You don't earn it when you lock people out of the room for the conversation before a decision is made. You don't earn it when you say, I know what's best for you in this very paternalistic way. None of that works. So keep yourself accountable. Welcome to The Other 80. I'm Claudia Williams. We've now made almost two dozen episodes of this podcast, and some very strong themes are starting to emerge. One of those themes is how health plans and providers can build meaningful and trusted relationships with communities. So what does that take? It takes listening deeply without getting defensive. It takes investing in co-design with teams and communities. But it also takes learning how to share power. Today's guest really brings these ideas and leadership lessons home. Karen Dale is market president for AmeriHealth Caritas's Medicaid plan in D.C. She's also the chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer for the AmeriHealth Caritas family of companies. I invited Karen on this podcast because she's a bold and fearless leader who is dedicated to integrating medical and social service for AmeriHealth's members. So please welcome Karen Dale to The Other 80. I always start with a question, which is, what are our listeners really need to know about you as a person? Oh, there are several things. The first is I care deeply about human beings, especially those that encounter rougher circumstances, encounter more challenges. And I think it's really important and incumbent on each of us to do our part to support them. And we all can do a part in some way, whether it's pushing for policies that promote equity, whether it's those organizations we choose to support, whether it's us volunteering our time to engage with and lift up others. Any of those things help us move in the direction to tip the scale so that all human beings have the best opportunity to achieve health and well-being and to thrive. And that's critical to me that I play a role to be a catalyst in that way, and that I support others to do that well. What you just said reminds me of a quote that I just loved from your commencement speech at George Mason. Oh, you've done homework. Oh, my goodness. I have done homework. (laughs) I, I do my homework. The quote is, the universe brings me gifts, things I don't know to ask for. What I know to be true is I'm good at recognizing capacity in every individual on our team. I love finding myself in this dense forest of endless and often untapped capacity. So I just want you to unpack that a little bit for us. What was the genesis of that amazing, beautiful statement? Oh, you know, I tell people that the gifts I receive, I'm always open to them because there are lessons in them. And I've been leading people for a really long time. And some people say, oh, you know, that's a difficult job, whatever. There's so much learning in it and so much richness in it. And 
it's almost as though the more I invest in leading, the more I invest in the people I lead, the more gifts blossom, you know what I mean, right? It's just so, so awesome. And sometimes um, if we're not investing, it doesn't happen. And then we're wondering why things are the way they are. So my commitment to all the people, whether their title is formally leading, if they're on the team, is that there's this spirit of enrichment, investing, 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 right? Because it, it bears so many gifts. And then if you layer on top of that a culture, a culture that's focused on building like intersection and mutuality, you know, like on our team, we talk about how we love being together and how we love the energy that we create together because it brings so much good. All of that requires work. And and it's the most important thing because all the business results that you need happen when you are investing in each human being. They experience a sense of caring and belonging. And I dare say love, right? You know, Um, and they are being enriched in terms of upskilling and personal development. And they know that this is not about criticizing their performance. It's all around enhancing and coaching them up, right? So people on my team make mistakes. I love that because it's something that they are comfortable disclosing to the whole team. And so my message there in making that point is that everyone is capable of being that type of leader. Often, especially new leaders, they hear those words, but they don't know how to make that thing happen. What would be happening for me as a new person on your team? Sure. This is a brilliant group of, think of them as consultants and supporters who only have your best interest at heart. Go to them first. I don't have all the answers. So our team works in a way that they resolve we really rarely have conflict, but they, you know, they work together to to work through all of that. And it's not that we don't have conflict because we don't disagree. Oh, we disagree. A matter of fact, I just had a call this morning where I I just ended with appreciation for the robustness of the discussion <laughs> and the feedback received. <laughs> Because that's who we, who we are. That's our culture. For listeners, it's only like 1045. So this ah, happened very early. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that's that's who we are. That's who we are, right? And so I explain in great detail all of that to candidates. Because some people, maybe based on their previous titles or history, may not be accepting of that. And I want them to know that with a level of clarity that helps them in deciding whether this is the team they want to join. Because if you are used to resting on your title and all your degrees and et cetera, our team may not be the team for you because we work in that sense of mutuality. So the person with the most degrees, highest degrees, biggest jobs before is in the same spot on the team as everyone else. So people can question them. And the questioning is not to be derogatory. The questioning is to make sure that we are strong and we have thought through things that maybe from someone else's perspective, there is an area, a blind spot. It makes us stronger and it makes us better. I took a leadership class with Ron Heifetz and he's this amazing uh, professor of leadership, but his point is your job as a leader is to hold the vessel of change and you can't allow it to break, but you have to be able to support the real conversations, because where there's conflict, it usually means there's something very deep that people aren't in alignment on yet. You know, conflict helps us to grow. We learn so much. I learn about 
what matters to someone. I learn about kind of sometimes history and perspective. How did they get to this point of view that they're holding? I learn about their ability to incorporate new perspectives. And I mean, there's just so much richness there that, yeah, we lean into it. We head towards it every time. Another thing you've said is that you're an impatient person, and I (laughs) share that trait. You work in environments, a large health plan, Medicaid, that are not known for their flexibility and openness to making shifts, right? And so I guess my question is, how do you know when and how to push in those bureaucratic environments? Ah, that's a great question. So my impatience is about getting the right thing on the radar, alignment around it, and action. And I I want to remain a little impatient, right? Because otherwise, I think the, the opposite of that is to be complacent. So you're just sitting there going, yeah, I guess nobody's interested, whatever. So my impatience is to be that catalyst to keep pushing and to maintain a steadfast commitment to the change that is good for the human beings. And yes, it can take way too long, <laughs> you know? I don't know. Impatience creates creates a bit of an energy for me to keep pushing and to try to light a fire under others. Um, And I do that often with questioning. Like I say, what will it take for us to fill in the blank? Or what would you need in order to help move this forward? I keep questioning, questioning, because those questions are things that can lead us to an action. And I also love that because it puts the purpose on the shared table instead of saying, well, why do you disagree with me? That becomes personal. It's more like, okay, you've expressed this concern. How do we collectively get to this shared purpose that I know you care about as much as I do, but you might have some knowledge or information I don't have. Mm -hmm. We're going to move now to your work in DC and maybe first just describe your role and then I'll ask you some questions about the year ahead in the DC market. Certainly. So in the District of Columbia, my title is Market President and Chief Executive Officer for our plan. We've been proudly serving district residents, over 100,000 of them, for the past 10 years. And we have differentiated ourselves as innovators, as focused on health-related social needs and social determinants, as deeply embedded in the community. And using those things I've just mentioned as assets, it has just pushed us to a place where we've consistently been the plan of choice. We are deeply, deeply, deeply connected to our members in a way that makes sure that they know that that we have their best interest, that we are listening, that the voice of their lived experience matters in how we shape what we're doing and how we advocate for them in terms of policy changes, et cetera. January is a time of often new beginnings. And so as you look forward to 2024, what are some new things you'll be starting and focusing on to advance equity and really serve your clients in the DC market? Absolutely. You know, we've done a lot. When people look at the list of health-related social needs interventions that we have that are pretty mature, uh, considering when we as a nation really got more focused on this in an organized way, I don't know that we're adding a lot of new ones, but rather we want to look at the ones we have and say, how do we get even better? What else can we do to support this partnership? What else can we do to refine the use of data 
to help drive the right intervention for the right person in the right way at the right time? How do we help our partners, our community-based organizations, providers, and others? The alternative payment models do help us to create a system where, especially if you think about using social risk adjustment as well for providers who are seeing a disproportionate number of people who have high medical complexity, high social needs, right? That we can help to balance things. And we've done great. When I explain to people that we have several of our community-based organizations that are already in an alternative payment model, they're like, how are you doing that? Ah, it's the relationship. It's the trust. It's their patients, right? Because we're asking them to dedicate energy and time to something that's not usually their model. However, it's been wonderful to take that journey together in a very trusting and caring way. No mistake is bad. We're learning together and have them move along that continuum. So we want to do even more of that. Behavioral health will be carved in, in pretty much its fullness from the Department of Behavioral Health to the managed care plans. And that transition uh, should occur in April. It's a huge undertaking. It is the right thing. I've advocated for it for quite some time because it's like we were the MCOs missing a component, right? That's really important. And so now having this more holistic view of all the services and supports related to behavioral health, I think will give us a real opportunity in terms of whole person health making the care less abrasive sometimes, because when you have to go four different places, four different people, you know, engaged and involved, sometimes our communication may inadvertently cause things to not feel like the best experience. I think this is an opportunity for us as managed care plans to shine, to get this right, and to do an even better job with who we serve. So just circling back to that value-based payment model for community organizations. It's so important because these are organizations that are often very cash strapped, Mm -hmm. that are producing huge beneficial outcomes, but don't only get paid for a fraction of the outcome they produce. So like you said, they may not have the infrastructure, the financial systems to take this on. Can you take us into one of those partnerships? How did you build that, whether it's housing or, or food services or whatever it is? Sure. So my favorite is uh, Children's Law Center. Children's Law Center is located at our Children's National Medical Center in the District of Columbia. At least they've been there the longest. I'll tell you more in terms of the story. And what they initially had been focusing on are children that showed up in the emergency room that were diagnosed with asthma who continued to have exacerbations. And under further scrutiny, they determined that It's the lived environment, right? It may be mold in the apartment or house. It may be rodents. It may be that the AC or heating system needs to be, you know, it might be the carpet. Like they discovered that there were so many things related to lived environmental factors that landlords weren't addressing despite the requests, despite all of that. And so families often have a tough choice to make whether they really push hard and escalate with the landlord and then they kick them out, right? Or they just remain quiet and suffer in silence. And so Children's Law Center has attorneys who are amazing in working with families for them to represent 
them in terms of what the landlord must do. And they are so, so good at this in terms of breaking the cycle of a child needing to go to the emergency room over and over and over again. And so the interest for us in part is one, it is no good for that child to be spending all that time in the emergency room. It is no good for the other siblings who may also be young children to be going to the emergency room with mom and the sibling that has asthma. And it is no good for that family to be living in an environment that could be remediated. And so when you look at the cost as well, for all those emergency room visits, even though the parent is doing or guardian is doing the best they can with, you know, making sure this child is getting all their inhalers, you know, all the treatment they're supposed to get, but it's the lived environment that's causing the problem. We felt it needed to be addressed. That's the initial scope of work they had is to intervene for our members that were diagnosed with asthma, the pediatrics. So part of this is it's for the intervention is for households where there is a child diagnosed with asthma. Um, and then we expanded um, a couple of years ago to looking at children who have some needs in terms of the educational aspect that there's treatment needed, support needed, and navigating that may be challenging for the family. And so they will jump in and assist there to make sure these children get the supports they need in the right way, right? Consistently support the parents in how they navigate. And again, both things produce just huge benefits, huge benefits. Um, and then there are sometimes these ad hoc situations that come up. We had a mom, uh, I think if I remember correctly, she had newly delivered and had another child at home as well. And she was a few days away from the paycheck she needed to pay her rent. And the landlord wanted to evict her. And I thought, really? Over just a couple of days? And so I called Children's Law Center. And though that wasn't our typical use case, they were on it because they're children in the household. And what good does it do to evict someone over just a couple of days where you could wait and she would be able to make the payment. You know, we've got three pay for performance measures in the District of Columbia. Potentially preventable admissions, all cause 30 day readmissions and low acuity non-emergency room visits. Those are often selected by states because those are that's a lot of cost in the system. Consider it waste. Right. If, so if you can address those, you can actually free up dollars to be directed to the right care in the right way. And so we usually use those as measures as well, pre and post to say, after an intervention, did we see improvement on those? We also look at some of the process measures type things like making sure some type of health risk assessment is done, looking at social needs, you know, whatever some of those other things are that are helpful to look at how you care for this person in their full context and, you know, more holistically. Uh, and then we also look at the HEDIS measures, which are how we're measured. Health plans are often measured in terms of their accreditation and are they really addressing the key things that need to be addressed. So that mix of things helps us to create alternative payment models or value-based contracts with our providers and our community-based organizations. And what I love with the community-based organizations is all the learning that they have, right? Because I don't want to ever change who they are, right? I don't want them to suddenly feel like they're just a 
an arm of the managed care organization. They are brilliant at what they do. They often have much more trust from the community and who we serve than a managed care plan would. And so we want to find that right balance and intersection so that they're doing what they are amazing at doing. And we are helping them to be aligned around some of these other things that are important markers or measurements for whether we are helping people along that continuum to being healthy and experiencing strong sense of well-being. Are you able to use the payment you get from DC Medicaid to pay for things like legal intervention? Is that an allowable expense or is that something you have to pay off of a different bucket? Yeah, we pay mostly for our health-related social needs interventions from our admin. And people say, oh, you know, that's a lot. Well, the benefit, though, in doing all the upfront work is to understand from a financial modeling standpoint what the potential return on investment is, right? And so when we looked at how high the cost was for all those emergency room visits, a well-tuned, orchestrated intervention gives a return. I mean, the savings are huge when they intervene with families. I loved hearing about the equity review the D.C. government was doing. You talked about that. But can you tell us a little bit more about that? I think it's such a great example of where opportunities lie far beyond medical care. Yes. To look broadly at how government investment can address health-related social needs. What did D.C. do by doing an equity review, and what were the results of that? Sure. So in two parts of our city, decades of disinvestment and, you know, you can go all the way back to the 60s and redlining and all the things, right? What people sometimes fail to recognize is how that continues to be perpetuated, right? Because without a honest and earnest and really focused effort, you don't undo 50, 60 years of something. And so we still have two areas of our city, wards seven and eight, which are both in the east end of our city, that legacy really continues. So you see a higher rate of lots of chronic diseases, particularly hypertension, cardiovascular disease, high cholesterol, because one of the things is we don't have a lot of grocery stores there, right? We don't have a lot of safe and walkable spaces. We have higher rates of crime, we have higher rates of joblessness, you know, just a number of things that creates way too long a list, which says there's inequity at the base of that. And so the journey we've been on is to say, so how do we invest more in those neighborhoods? How do we make sure care is accessible? You know, we have a new hospital that's going to be built soon. We've got to catch up on all the investments that are required so that the healthy choice is the easy choice, it's the most accessible, all those things. So um, prior to us getting the second grocery store that we've had, um, one of the things was making sure people had transportation to get to um, a grocery store, bringing things to them. You know, For example, when we started our food as medicine strategy, we were focused on uh, childbearing members, right, who were pregnant and we wanted to be sure that they had the best possible meal. And we were looking at our data and seeing that there were lots of instances where they had um, hypertension or 
gestational or pregnancy-induced diabetes. And so we said, you know, probably food is at the root of this, you know, making sure that that's covered would be really important. And we started doing home-delivered meals. We did it with also making sure that someone had nutritional support, which is being able to speak with a nutritionist about their diet, not in that judgy kind of way, but rather let's just talk about what you usually eat and what, you know, are you, what are you able to fix and what do you, you know, just what, what do you buy at the groceries, right? And honoring whatever it is they tell us and also looking for what are those culturally contextual things. You know, we have a lot of our members who, uh, whose origins are from Ethiopia. So their diet is different. We have a lot of members whose origins are from Central America. How do we incorporate that in the conversation, celebrate that and give them, you know, choices and options, things to think about in terms of their diet? And so that whole um, sphere of thinking about even how we design that intervention or all of our food and medicine intervention was grounded in equity, right? It is not that someone is choosing to eat unhealthy, but if they are on a limited budget and it's easier to buy four cans of fill in the blank for $3 when they're on sale, that puts food on the table. So we're not judging that, but we might offer to them that we know you have these limited choices and here's what we want you to do. To me, that's equity, right? All of that thinking through. And so in our city, you know, we're working on what are those systemic and structural things. So we're looking forward to our new hospital that will really focus on what are the needs, not just saying the hospital is going to have these things because that's what hospitals have, but are they matched well to what we know are the needs that the community has? And again, really looking forward to how all of that unfolds. Somebody by the name of Tony Eiton was a guest on the show, and he's a leader of the California Endowment. And he was one of the originators of the concept that your zip code matters more than your genetic code yes. in determining your health outcomes because of these, not just the current inequities, but really the historic power imbalance that led to those inequities. Yes. And the California Endowment invested $2 billion in improving health in California. And the major takeaway that came away is the only way we're going to over time make the shifts that are necessary is increasing the power and voice of communities to make demands, right? To say, we need this in our community. That is not a traditional role for a health plan in creating that kind of democracy and voice. But I'm curious if you do see that as your role, given what you've been talking about. I absolutely do. And how do you do that? Oh, sure. Well, very proud to say that we have two member wellness advisory councils. One is adults and one is uh, adolescents. And people say, well, why do you need an adolescent one? I said, well, they're smart, they're capable, they're energetic, and we should be interrupting sooner any of those things that would cause them to make not the best health decision, right, for themselves or their community. And we should be educating them on how this all works. It's fortuitous that prior to the pandemic, we had the Member Wellness Advisory Council for adolescents because, as you know, we have a whole endemic at this point around adolescent mental health. And so we had been talking with them about that prior to the pandemic. And so just the feedback and the input that we have received over time has been incredibly valuable to how we've focused, right? So we focused on 
contracting with a provider where what we learned is adolescents are not going to lean towards going to see a therapist. They're just not, no matter how much pain and suffering they might be in. However, a peer support, another adolescent being that front door who's trained and knows how to listen really well and understands what types of things require escalation, and doing that via something like text is much more palatable. And you get to the same place. However, you get there with a lot more energy and participation because you've designed something different. So very early, we put that relationship and vendor in place to leverage that, and it has worked really well. But if we weren't listening and they didn't have a seat at the table, I don't know that we would have garnered the same insights and recognize how important it was to move very quickly to make that happen. Our adult wellness advisory council, oh my gosh, we learned so much. I'll give you a quick story that goes back to our discussion about food as medicine. So when we first started that, you know, my team and I, we felt really proud. We tried the food. We had it delivered to the office. We tasted it. We were like, (laughs) you know, it probably could use some salt, but it's fine. When we went to present this to our member wellness advisory council, you know, I was like really excited and I'm just going on and on about how wonderful this is that we're going to be able to do this for you. However, we never say it's done. We say, this is our idea and you know, this is what we want to do. Tell us what your thoughts are. And boy, there was like a lot of silence. And I thought, but this is a really great idea, right? And there was a gentleman <laughs> whose arms were folded really tight and he just looked very skeptical. So I said, can you share what's on your mind? And he had lots of questions. Who makes the food? I didn't. I mean, I assumed they had people they hired to make the food, but I couldn't give a definitive answer, right? Why are you making it free? You know, can you just decide when we get it? Is it lower value, right? Yeah, right. (laughs) You know, and can you decide to just cut off the food when you decide? I mean, like the questions came from a completely different standpoint than my team and I had, because we all were on board going, this is going to be awesome, right? And so that just demonstrates the value of listening, and giving people equal power in the room to tell you what they think and you listen and you act on it, right? You don't just go thinking because you've got a great idea and you've read articles about it that boop, off we go, you know? There has to be that listening. And whatever our enrollees tell us, I tell my team, your first job is to listen. We do not defend or diminish someone's experience, right? And it just shows how personal what's in your kitchen and what you provide to your family and food. It's so close to our emotions and and to safety, honestly. And like, what is my health plan doing feeding me? (laughs) Right. I I can totally imagine that. And I think in a different rollout, you you just never would have heard that. People wouldn't have consumed it, but you wouldn't have heard it. Exactly. And we work really hard to build trust in the room, like no matter what someone says, my team knows, you do not refute, you do not defend, spend time just sitting with it. That is so important because otherwise, I mean, everyone already knows the power balance. So you've got to be very intentional about giving up power, coming with humility, looking at everything through a lens of equity and let them have the floor, right? And I I really want everyone to work to shift in that direction where the voice is represented when you are thinking about it, not after you've decided. So we don't talk about these conversations as focus groups. 
a long time ago, I had a member say to me, yeah, don't like that term. And I said, tell me more. And they said, what does that mean even, focus groups? I mean, does it mean you just get to ask those <laughs> questions? You know what I mean? Like, So it's yeah. all of that that needs to be reimagined and paid more attention to. Because when people are used to being marginalized, there's very little trust. And the changes that we want to see, even well-intentioned ones, are only going to advance at the speed of gaining that trust. And you have to earn it. You don't earn it when you lock people out of the room for the conversation before a decision is made. You don't earn it when you say, I'm, I know what's best for you in this very paternalistic way. None of that works. So you have to like keep yourself accountable. Is my action earning us trust or promoting distrust? And to me, it's one or the other. And you've got to really focus on that. I'm really sitting with your comment about not refuting and defending because I think I fall prey to that very often. And I'm just going to lead the conversation to reflect more on, on why that is. It's interesting. May I add something to my previous answer? Yeah. Even after we have agreed on an intervention that our advisory committees have said, yep, you know, with these tweaks or whatever, right? We maintain a discipline that we go back and check. How's it going? And not with, again, a leading question, open question. How's it going? We've been delivering meals for whatever amount of time. How's it going? So we did that on the meal delivery for birthing people. And we had several moms who told us they never had the meal. So we're double checking our records. It shows that it was delivered and we're a bit confused. So we said, what happened with the meal? Did you not get it? And they said, no, I got it. I gave it to my children. You gave it to your children? Right. Yeah, we don't have food. It's not a matter of I don't have food. We don't have food. And what mother would eat a meal and not give it to her children? From that day forward to today, we provide meals to the entire household. That's the question. How many people in the house? And that's how many, right? But do you see, like, it's this idea of, like, we've got to focus on deep understanding. And it's not a one-time conversation. It's let's learn more, try things a couple different ways until we get there. Because human beings are not one-dimensional. I just yesterday started a new job as the chief social impact <gasps> officer at the Berkeley School of Public Health. Oh my goodness. Congratulations. Thank you. Oh, wow. In keeping with your guidance, I am spending a lot of time listening and getting input and really trying to think deeply about this role. And I love something you said about just cause, which mm. was every organization needs to find its just cause. Mm -hmm. What could be in your wildest imagination, the just cause for a school of public health in today's world? Mm. It would be to create a system, structure, and culture that infuses what every student needs to be a catalyst for positive change for human beings, just kind of going full circle to where I started. I observe sometimes this reticence, this too long of a pause for people to jump in. And so I ask people, what will it take for you to jump in and do something, anything? Like, well, I don't know. And, you know, I don't know if that's the, a role I can play. 
So, you know, back to the commencement address, like I need us to all view this as part of our commitment as human beings, right? And so a school that creates that culture, gives people the tools, gives them the encouragement, gives them the the freedom to try and fail, but learn and apply, that that would be amazing because I don't think we have enough people. We need a whole generation of people who are in the fight, right? I love like the abolitionist framework because it says, I am willing to give up something. I am willing to give up something in order to create the change that is needed, you know? And so that that takes work to create these individuals who see that as a part of living, being willing to stand on the line and give up something for the change we need. And I think that's it's so in keeping with the way we're thinking about this work, which is universities have the two pillars they're very, I think, tuned to, which is research and education. But there's a third, which is making change in the world. Yes. And if we don't have the third, the first two are kind of useless, really. (laughs) And so let's walk through what that could look like for students. What would they be learning in this change-making university? You know, I love the universe brings me all I need. I'm going to give you an example. At Georgetown University, in the past, prior to the pandemic, I guess lectured on all of that. And there's a person who leads up a lot of their, um, I'm not going to get his title right, but the public health component of their work. So he worked quite a bit during the pandemic to come up with this concept around community-based learning. I love it. Yes. And so the community-based learning is that they spend time actually going to community-based organizations and learning with us. I tell you, I was so blown away, so blown away when they came to us. First of all, so honored that they asked and they came to spend time with my team and I in a conversation. I want to say it was maybe about 14 or 15 students. The beauty of it was these were students who were not public health students because the university has decided it is that important that we have everyone. So there were pre-law, there was political science, right? Because they recognize that unless we do that third part, like you said, we will not get all the disciplines that help to make the change we need happen. And so they they have this rotation of all these different community-based organizations that they go and spend time with. Afterwards, they each have to write reflections, which he shared with me. And I will tell you, I was all tears, right? Because they got it. They got it. Students are so thirsty for yes. that kind of purpose and connection. And it gives more meaning to what they're learning in the classroom also when they can imagine how to apply it. Yeah. The question I always end with is, what is a leadership lesson you learned the hard way? Uh, there are two that rise to the occasion. For me. So, you know, I started leading very young, right? <laughs> so, you know, I would always say what I really thought and maybe not filter or think through the best way to present it. Um, and so it's really important that even though you may have something to say, if it is not well-timed or, you know, communication is about what is received. So it can't just be about what you want to put out there. And so it's learning how to create really a much more fertile ecosystem for whatever the idea is or the, the thought is or what you want people to receive. So I spend more time 
thinking about what I want them to receive, not backing away from the message, but figuring out how to craft it in a way that people receive it, remember it, and will act on it. Because otherwise, you're just really a talking head if people don't receive it in a way that they can act on it. And most important to me at this point in life is that people act on it and that the legacy of change that we want to see, it's sitting with people in a way that they're going to keep things going, right? The second thing is around the importance of networking, really getting connected to people because that's how change happens. Change doesn't happen because you have the loudest voice, the most power. It really happens through this network of individuals that are aligned around a just cause, a similar purpose, who want to be part of the change. But if you never get to know them in their fullness, you're taking away from creating the movement. And so being very purposeful about constantly building new relationships, connecting people to form new relationships, all of that creates this wonderful web, right, of possibilities to help fuel the change. I think for many young people in their careers, that they see that as something higher up people get to do. Yes, that's it's so at true. every level, right? Yes. It's it's at every level that the, that relationship building is so critical for the effectiveness of, of one's work. It's been just a huge pleasure to talk with you. And I'm glad to be in California. I'm very excited, but I'm also a little sad not to be in DC where I can yeah. get to know you and your work better. Yes. I'm so excited for you. Oh my goodness. You have to I am so excited. Yeah, please yeah. keep in touch. I sure will. Yeah. Wow. This conversation with Karen really got me thinking. Our work on the social drivers focuses so much on operationalizing new services. Who's delivering them? What's the best way to contract with and pay for these services? What's the payoff? But we are hearing more and more about the leadership approach it will take for powerful health plans to meaningfully partner with community-based organizations. And so my last question is, who is doing the training and capacity building for that new leadership approach? This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore-Kloss. Check out the show notes for more information about Karen Dale and AmeriHealth Caritas. There's more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams. <laughs>